0: Low Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
1: The Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado, is a leading force in the brewing industry. Coors is the world's largest single-site brewery. It stretches almost five miles through Golden's Clear Creek Valley. The area encompasses all of the brewery operations, as well as subsidiary businesses, including Coors Transportation, the Coors Can Plant, and Coors Ceramics. But let's get back to what has made Coors famous, our beer. A unique part of the Coors brewing process is the huge German handcrafted copper kettles. The Coors legend began over a century ago, when Adolf Coors, a German stowaway, worked his way west and started the Golden Brewery in 1873. Young Adolf knew the water was a crucial ingredient and chose Clear Creek Valley with its abundance of pure underground springs as the perfect site to brew quality beer. That tradition has been handed down through each generation of the Coors family. Today it's continued by the fourth generation of Coors. This progressive family has extended quality to the process itself by establishing environmental preservation and improvement as a top priority. For example in 1959 the company pioneered the use of aluminum cans in the brewing business and in turn was first to establish a voluntary recycling program called Cash for Cans. Coors is also committed to reducing pollution of our air and water and is dedicated to energy conservation.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 175 of Who Killed? I am your host Bill Huffman and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. What if I told you one of the heirs to one of the largest breweries was kidnapped and held for ransom in 1960? You might say, yeah, I'm a true crime junkie, so of course I know that story of Adolf Coors Third. Well, did you know it was something that had been planned for nearly five years? Well, this is the story of the tragic demise of Adolf Coors and the manhunt for his abductor. I know I've been somewhat inconsistent these past few weeks, but I've been going through some major life changes. And they're all for the best, but I apologize that... Shows haven't been as consistent as they have been for you know the previous years. But again, back on the horse. And hell, next week I'll be at CrimeCon. And that will be thrust right back into the scene. And I'm excited about it. Don't forget, if you would like to save on your ticket, you can use my promo code Who Killed to save 10%. And anyway, let's get focused on this week's episode and that is a little bit of a history lesson as we travel back to the year 1960 and just up the road from where I'm recording in Morrison, Colorado. And what am I talking about? Well, I mentioned it a few minutes ago and that was the abduction of Adolf Coors the 3rd. Now, Adolf was the heir to the Coors Brewery throne. He had two brothers, and we'll start with the abduction. And this basically happened when, let's see, it was February 9th, 1960, and a milkman discovered an abandoned station wagon in the middle of a bridge over Turkey Creek, and this was near Morrison. The vehicle was still running, and the radio was still playing. Now, as the milkman approached the vehicle, he did notice a stain on the road. He quickly notified the police, assuming, since this is 1960, he would have had to driven to the local police station. Obviously, with a name like Adolf Coors, the police realized they were dealing with a serious situation. So, they had determined that he left his house in Morrison and had been abducted a short time later. A huge search party was actually put together to find the 45-year-old father of four. And as we've seen in most of these other cases that we've covered here on who killed, they were unable to find any evidence or trace of Adolf or the killer. So they did find some of Adolf's possessions, though, underneath the bridge... The following day, the FBI joined search for Mr. Coors. On February 10, 1960, working hand-in-hand, hand, the FBI and Colorado authorities were able to invoke the federal kidnapping statute. And by doing this, they were able to have more resources on their hands. Now, Coors' wife, Mary, she would be sent a ransom note that was typewritten on that same day. Unfortunately, they followed the ransom note's instructions, but, of course, they never heard back. With the little evidence that the government had, they began analyzing. Now, the ransom note stood out because it had a unique typeface, and this is according to the FBI, as well as unique watermark. So, with the FBI focused on the bigger issues, the local police and state police worked on leads closer to home. And just a couple facts about that time and basically what they did is they did extensive interviews and so they just stuck to the facts and that what they did find out was that a canary yellow car a mercury had been seen in the area not to mention that the elephant in the room here but the car was yellow And I know criminals aren't the smartest, but seriously, if you're going to do a kidnapping, why would you be driving a canary yellow car? And again, since this is uh, the case, and the police now literally had their first legitimate lead. Now, as the FBI's want to do, they tracked down the owner, and that was one Walter Osborne. And guess what Walter did, as all good criminals do? He left town right after the abduction. Another clue that just paints this guy into a corner. And oh wait, there's more. Right before the abduction, Osborne purchased a gun, handcuffs, and a typewriter. And wait, sorry, I'm so sorry. There's actually one last thing that really shows his guilt or his stupidity. He actually took out an insurance policy at his previous job, and he wrote that his beneficiary was Joseph Corbett. Well, Pitt put a pin in that name. On March twenty second, 1960, the FBI issues a wanted poster featuring the smartest criminal, one Joseph Corbett Jr. He also had aliases ranging from James Barron, all the way up to our favorite Walter Osborne. Now, the poster also notes that he should be considered armed and dangerous. Now, he also was a gun enthusiast, which they put on the wanted poster, which is, I guess, a good thing to know. So, later that spring, the wheels began to fall off for one Mr. Corbett. And Corbett turned out to be the father... Of Joseph Corbett Jr. Now, this was the chief suspect in the abduction. So basically, when you abduct the heir of one of the largest breweries in the world, this is most likely going to land you on the top 10 most wanted list. And on September 11th, 1960, the search for Adolf Coors actually came to an end. And It was a tragic end, of course, um, when two hikers or a few hikers had stumbled across his body. Now, the body was located 12 miles to the south of Sedalia, a suburb of Denver. And items recovered at the scene showed that there was no doubt that this was Adolf. But a bone analysis was done to confirm this. And tragically, the discovery of the body led to the case fading out of the public consciousness. And... Wanted posters were still published in magazines such as Reader's Digest, and it was actually one of these readers in Canada who would bring the biggest biggest break in the hunt for one Joseph Corbett. And again, this guy, Joseph Corbett, pulled another ingenious move to stay incognito Corbett was reportedly driving a fire engine red, yes, red Pontiac. So, October 29th, 1960, approximately eight months and 23 days or so since he abducted and killed Adolf Coors, the Vancouver police shockingly discovered the fire engine red car at a motel, and he did not give up a fight. And at a motel, he did say, you know, I'm the guy you're looking for. And then he would be extradited back to Colorado. And this was because of the fact that the body was found within the state. Otherwise, it would have been a federal crime. And again, that's the one thing that, you know, makes it a little bit different. Now, Osborne and Corbett, you know, they... They're the same person, so I'm just going to reference some of the early facts about this guy. Now, he didn't smoke or drink, and he was kind of eccentric, you know, one of those Ted Kaczynski-like types. And uh, he didn't own a phone. He was what you would consider a minimalist in today's society. Now, he rarely spoke to his neighbors, and... In Denver, he actually worked at the Benjamin Moore Paint Company. So, Osborne, a.k.a. Corbett, or Corbett, a.k.a. Osborne, had moved to Denver in 1955. As I mentioned, Adolf Coors was the grandson of the Coors Brewery founder, and he was actually, when he was abducted, he was the president of Coors Brewery. Now, ironically, this is just something that I came across in the research that they pointed out, is that he was actually allergic to beer. So the Coors business was very anti-union, and they actually had tried to keep a very low profile. And I think this was probably due to their anti-union views, and they were not the type of family that would be seen in, let's say, the New York Post, page 6, or, you know, anything along those lines. Because this was a family that really protected their privacy. And I think a lot of families back in the 50s and 60s, they had just kind of gone through the Depression a few decades prior, so they were probably pretty private about their wealth. And they probably didn't want to have too many people coming to them and asking for help. Now, this is complete speculation on my part but I do believe that there is something to be said for that in the way that people carry themselves who do have money and then you know they eventually come across money but I mean he I mean this was a this was a a family company Coors was a family company that you know Adolph Sr built and we'll get to him in a second and it's kind of interesting Well, you know, to be honest with you, it actually comes up right now, and that is the fact that the senior had fallen out of a window in 1928 at a hotel. Now, it is rumored that this could have been a suicide. I get that completely. I mean, who falls out of a window? And if you know anything about um, 1928... There were a lot of things going on in that time. Even though the company was doing well, it still had to deal with some of the things that were coming down the pipeline, which was prohibition, if they weren't in the midst of it already. And, you know, keeping a company running is a stressful job, especially when you're basically the largest brewer in the western part of the United States. Now, this is when Junior stepped up, and this was... this would be Adolf the father. Now, he Adolf the Third had two other brothers, Bill and Joe. Now, the father actually wanted them to be so conservative that he didn't. He, conservative may be the wrong word, but he wanted them to be so low key that he wouldn't even allow them to wear sport coats. He actually made them wear leather boots and you know just, and button downs, and that was it and so that was kind of a a thing for them and I think that was one of their ways of trying to keep themselves down to earth or appear down to earth because again, this company was very wealthy this family was very wealthy and they had a lot of money and not everybody did at this time and well, that's the same goes today but uh, it's definitely something that was bigger back then and again, it's so interesting this whole case And, like, we all know about the Lindbergh abduction, you know, when Charles Lindbergh's baby was abducted. And that seems like a... I guess that's a bigger story because Lindbergh was, like, a national hero and this is just some rich family who had their child abducted. But nonetheless, it still had to be huge news. And to hear that after the body was discovered that it kind of left the public consciousness it's a, such a disservice for that family and for Mary Coors who and her four kids basically left behind with nothing and no answers to be honest with you until they found Corbett so you know you have it's you know it's the 1950s all the kids are now ingrained in the company i believe bill was the head of the brewery joe was the uh, head of operations. And then, of course, Adolf Third was the president. So, well, his family lived in the foothills. And this was in 1959. They actually moved there. You know, it was one of those things. He wanted to kind of get away from the business to a degree. And being up in the foothills. I mean, he was 15 miles away or so away from the from the plant. So that helped him get away. And now Adolf Coors was born on January 12th, 1916. Now, he went to high school at Philip Exeter, and I want to say that Exeter is also where Zuckerberg went, but I don't know if this is the same Exeter in Manhattan. But if so, kind of a funny coincidence just because everybody's favorite new arch Villain is Mark Zuckerberg, much to his own doing. (laughs) Now, he went on to Cornell University, and so he followed in his father's footsteps. So he had an Ivy League degree, and for some reason, it always comes up in his bio he was a great skier. Well, you live where you live, and he had the mountains at his disposal, so I would assume that he would be a good skier. Let's take a moment to hear from this week's sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and more. I know that when I'm feeling burnt out, I really don't want to get out of bed. And when I get that feeling, it's time to take action. We associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling... That burnt out feel. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. I know that I have been in therapy for 30 plus years and I cannot tell you enough about how great it is. So BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with a therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and who killed listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com/who. That's B E T T E R H E L P.com/who. All right, we are back. Now you had Joseph Corbett who was born on October 25th, 1928. Now, Corbett went to the University of Oregon, but that kind of got derailed after Corbett decided to kill an Air Force sergeant when he shot him in the back of the head. Now, fast forward a little bit. In 19- 1959, he escaped and took on the alias Walter Osborne. Now, eight days after the abduction of Adolf Coors, a burning car was found in Atlantic City. Now, police uncovered the serial number because... When you burn a car, just so you know, you have to kind of take the VIN number off there in order for them not to be able to trace it back to you. Not that I'm giving anybody advice on how to dispose of a vehicle, but it is what it is. We've all seen the movies. Come on, guys. This isn't like I'm breaking any news here. So, eight days after the abduction, as I said, they find the car in Atlantic City. Now the police realize that this car was the one that's connected to the abduction, and it was seen at the scene of the crime. This led to the biggest manhunt in history, where police teamed up and the FBI actually took mud samples off the tires, and this matched the mud that was at the scene in Morrison. So you got to figure this is interesting because the car is you know used in an abduction in February. He drives all the way across the country, and yet there's still a way to get the mud off the bottom of the car and analyze it to the point where they're able to say it's from that specific area. I'm not gonna call it junk science here because I think there have been studies on it and that proves that it works, but it's kind of a stretch. I think the fact that there had been sightings of a man with a gun <laughs> in a canary yellow car. Yeah, it's probably the more important factor here. So let's just be honest. This was the thing about uh Corbett uh He gets arrested, and he actually gets released. Well, he gets convicted, obviously, of the murder. He ends up getting released in 1978 after serving 17 years. Found dead at the age of 80 with a single gunshot wound to the head, which they believe was obviously death by suicide. Now, Corbett was 31 at the time of the murder, and Corbett had set out to gain anywhere between 250 dollars to $500,000 for the kidnapping. Now, he spent the first month of 1960 stalking Coors at his ranch. He did find an opportunity, though, to make his move when he came across a bridge that went over Turkey Creek that was one lane, and it was a perfect spot for him to basically close in Adolph Coors. So... And does <laughs> you know I laugh at this stuff because it's like you come across this, these little tidbits of information. It's, and and this is just one of those things. It's like, despite all the evidence that I've already presented, Mister uh, Corbett here was actually considered a borderline genius. He was in a special group. And he apparently had a special grasp on science and vocabulary. He was considered bright and curious. Oh, and he was also handsome, because that's important. Now, his mother died after falling from a balcony Joseph had been working on. And as things tend to happen when incidents like that occur, he fell into a depression. And I'm not going to sit here and say that that is what led him to become the crazy person that he became, but I will say this, if I was working on something and a member of my family, let alone my mother, was injured during that process, I can't imagine what I would do, because yeah, that would put me in a funk, and I don't know if it would lead me to abducting somebody, but it definitely would lead you to feeling pretty shitty about yourself, not gonna lie. So he goes into a depression. And he actually, you know, I mentioned his first murder. And it sounds like when you hear the oh, he shot an Air Force sergeant, whatever. He, might, he was in the Air Force. No, not, not really. This guy was somebody he picked picked up and he was who was hitchhiking. And for some reason, what I don't know why, he shot the dude in the back of the head. And uh <laughs> uh you know he they tested his i q in jail in prison, and it was one forty eight so he was definitely you know up there as far as geniuses go now he did take again this is another weird thing. He took the name of his brothers, and that's how he came up with Walter Osborne because after he murdered the Air Force Sergeant, it was uh, August 1st, 1955, when he decided that he was going to escape the prison that he had been relocated to after being a model prisoner, and he just opened a screen door, or a screen window, and uh, was gone. So 100 law enforcement, a lab technician, Dale Ryder, and some other people went up to the scene of the crime and this is back on February 9th, 1960. Now this was one of those things where they had you know a crime scene photographer for the newspaper. So Ryder goes up there and he's taking photographs and he's taking pictures of the specks of blood. He'd take the take a portion of the bridge that was removed for analysis. And police again, began this is when police actually decided they were going to scour the post office. Remember I mentioned the ransom the ransom note earlier? Well, the ransom note was not actually delivered to Mary. They actually in- intercepted it at the post office. Now, it requested five hundred thousand dollars in ransom, and that was delivered overnight to Golden. But nothing occurred. And I'm not sure if that money, whatever happened to that money, to be honest with you. But the reports of a suspicious man sitting in his car with a rifle, that yellow car that I told you about earlier, started to come in. Now, I'm not, like, going to sit here and say that 2022 is any different than 1960 because people can be sitting in their cars with guns in Colorado. It's just the way it goes. But if you see the same guy sitting outside your apartment or your home, your place of work, with a gun, in his front seat, on more than one occasion, I'm saying you should probably call the cops because that's probably not something that he should be doing. And there's probably some ulterior motives for where he is and why he's doing what he's doing. So again, like... This dude, Joseph Corbett, borderline genius, does a bunch of really dumb stuff. He drives a canary yellow car while he's doing an abduction. During the abduction, he can't even pull off the job. He ends up shooting Mr. Coors twice. He then loads Coors' body in his car and drives 20 miles away and disposes of the body on the side of the road. He then proceeds to burn his canary yellow car. After This is after he went back to his place of residence, hurriedly packed up his stuff, caused a little bit of a scene with his landlord, because she always thought of him as somebody who was quiet, and then all of a sudden he was quickly moving out. Then the police discover the burning vehicle in Atlantic City a week later. I mean, what are we at? Mistake number four? Then he is on the top ten most wanted list, makes it to Canada somehow, and is cruising around Canada. Does he pick a low-key vehicle to drive around in, like a truck or something? No. He decides to pick a Pontiac. Not only just a Pontiac, but a fire engine red one. Uh, I mean, this guy just really, really, it's it's almost disturbing because (laughs) when you find out the story, like, so I had mentioned that it was 1959 that he escaped from prison. It was actually 1955. So in 1955, he moved to Denver. Then that, you know, under the alias of Walter Osborne, Now, this is actually when he had begun planning the abduction of Adolf Coors. Remember, I told you, he was abducted on February 9th, 1960. So this was one of those cases where you had somebody who was clearly obsessed with doing something that will put them on another level. And I know that when you get into a situation where you feel like you have no other choice and You start thinking irrationally Now, from what I've told you in this brief overview on this case Is that Corbett was actually a smart guy The unfortunate thing is that he wasn't the brightest criminal These are two things that you cannot do And you can't be two of the same things So basically you have Corbett being a genius and you have Corbett becoming Walter Osborne and then when he becomes Walter Osborne he just becomes a dumbass. I mean, if you want to paint it as simply as that. And honestly, it's like... This dude spent five years playing in it and got caught. (laughs) I mean, they knew who he was within like a week. So I would say that your planning wasn't very good, Joe, and uh, you could have done a better job. But the fact that he did that and he went through all the trouble to do this stuff, it's just... It's almost like he wanted to get caught and he didn't get anything out of it. So, I don't know. I just feel like this is one of those cases... Maybe the reason why this case doesn't get as much traction as other cases that have been high profile as far as ransoms go and kidnappings go is because of the fact that this guy was kind of an idiot and Adolf Coors was just a normal working Joe. And unfortunately he got caught up in this guy's crazy plan to, you know, make a bunch of money off of uh, abducting him. I mean, who does that? Who who plans for five years and says, I'm going to be rich because I am going to get $500,000 from kidnapping and then I'm going to live happily ever after. I don't believe that is possible. So I'm not sure what you guys think of this case, but I think the case is kind of cut and dry. I mean, we have a guy who was clearly psycho and a sociopath. And then we have a guy who really was on the up and up, you know, Adolf Coors, just a family man. None of this was salacious. He didn't do anything to cause his own demise. It was more of somebody else's psychosis that put him in the crosshairs. So when you do that, you really have no choice. How did he know that somebody was stalking him other than the fact that his neighbors saw him and they probably should have told him? But that's for another day now another interesting thing is that the Coors family they basically kind of stopped talking to Mary Coors and her daughter and her and her kids and I can't imagine a worse scenario where your father is killed your husband's killed and then your in-laws who basically are your you know Obviously, they're bread and butter because Adolf ran the freaking brewery. But the fact that they didn't, like, maintain a relationship and they've kind of lost touch over the years, it's sort of it's sad because they really should have not... It should have brought it closer together. And one of the reasons that they didn't actually stay close is because there was, like, a little bit of a disconnect between... Bill and Joe and Adolf. I mean, they were all brothers. They all worked in the industry together. But the fact that when the kidnapping occurred, they barely talked about it. And when the body was discovered, they didn't mention anything. I mean, they barely talked to people in private about it, let alone to people in the company. So there was a lot of resentment when it came to Mary Coors and how Mary felt about the actual situation i think she feels like she got the short end of the stick needless to say her husband was killed but then to be cut off sort of by the coors family i think that probably led her to feel negatively about them but i also say that i should take that they cut her off thing i should say that is me talking that's not necessarily what happened But it is interesting to think that they wouldn't go above and beyond for their grandchildren. I mean, they're still their grandchildren. Just my two cents on that. But anyway, everybody's different. So the story of Adolf Coors is basically he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But apparently that wrong time was for five years because this Corbett character, Walter Osborne character, one and the same, had his sights set on this dude for five fucking years, man. That's, like, insane. So, I mean, I would just go and say Adolf, unless he had, like, his own bodyguards and protection and stuff like that, which really wasn't a thing back then, at least for... You know, heirs. I mean, maybe if you were in the mafia. I mean, geez, I don't even know. But like, yeah, bodyguards in 1960, especially in that area of Colorado, nah, just doesn't seem like it would have fit. So he really had no chance, and that's a shame because he sounds like he would have was a normal guy, had a great life, and then all of a sudden this jackass decides he's gonna abduct you and ask for a bunch of money from your wife i mean (laughs) and then the fact that the family does pay i mean it's not like they were like fuck him you know we're not gonna pay this guy i think it's i think that's interesting so anyway just uh food for thought and uh on that note i think we're gonna wrap up this week's episode so thank you guys so much for listening as you know, I will be at CrimeCon next week. I'm a future podcast on Podcast Row. Now, there are no set hours this year, so you can kind of come and go as you please. And I will be at the booth here and there, as well as I'll have some swag and all that good stuff. If you haven't bought your ticket yet, it's still a bucket list item for a lot of people, and you want to save. You can use my promo code, Killed. And again... You can follow me on Twitter. That's at BillHuffman3. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can do so via Venmo at Bill-Huffman-3. And again, thank you guys so much for listening. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be able to do this. And I'm happy to say that now that I'm back and settled, I can promise you that we will be back to a normal schedule. And happy to be back in the swing of things. Living in limbo is never fun. Thanks to betterhelp.com for being a sponsor of this week's episode. So thank you guys so much again for listening. As always, stay healthy and be safe.